This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. So before we start um, our study, I wanted to do the uh, student entering ceremony with Marguerite and Brian and Adam and Jess. Jess is not, oh yes, there you are. <laughs> Sorry, you're, you're a little backlit. Um, and so we'll still be missing Rafael and uh, the other Jess, Jess Plum, whom I have to do on a, on a Saturday, I think at some point. So, um, if you have your malas, if you could, do you have an altar near you? Is, is that a yes? You, do you have one, Jess? Yes. And Adam, no. Okay. Um, let me just wait for Marguerite. Uh, and just while we're waiting, I've said this before, but I, I just want to reiterate um, that, you know, they, they gave me a gift, they sent me a gift, and I gave them this mala as a, really as a reminder, as a reminder of practice. I've said before, you know, I used the, the one that my teacher gave me, that Shugan Roshi gave me uh, when I became a teacher usually when I teach formally, um, and otherwise I have it on my altar. And, and I, do, I use it sometimes for some of my own services uh, when I feel I need a little extra help. Um, so, so this is really for me a visual reminder and a practical reminder of uh, my intent, my intent to wake up because I so easily forget, right? Things just, get in the way, life happens and I forget. And so I use all sorts of reminders. And this was my way of giving them something that, that they would have that was you know, from me and that hopefully when they would, they would see it, they'll remember, oh, right, I said, I want to do this. And I picked the malas really, really completely gut feeling, uh, seeing them somehow connecting them to the person, you know, so they all come, you know, online, they have a description, you know, and one of them gives strength and another one, all of them apparently give you calm and balance. So, you know, it's hard to, to put much stock on the descriptions. So I was really going by the feel of, you know, some of them are stone, some of them are wood, and by the, by the look of them and how I, for whatever reason that I couldn't really explain, associate them with each of you. So that's how I chose them. So um, if you have uh, an altar near you, if you could just incense your mala by uh, turning it um, clockwise, you know, three times over, over the incense. If not, imagine that you have the incense and do that, or you can do it tonight or you, when, you, when you do have it, um, when you have it near your altar. And then if everybody could just take a moment. And so again, the people today are becoming 
that we're marking them becoming formal students are Brian and uh, Jess Engelson and Adam and Marguerite. So if you could just hold them in your mind for a moment and uh, wish them, you know, what you would like to wish them for their path. Okay, so now if you could actually put it on, just put it around your neck briefly. And now my wish for you is that you see what you haven't yet seen, that you self-liberate what you think binds you and that you never forget that there's no such thing as other, any time, any place. May your lives go well. And now, do you have your cushion next to you, the place where you sit? Not if, if, if yes. Okay, great. So if you could stand, and if you don't, then same, you can do it after. Marguerite, you can, if you want to do just standing bows, that's fine. But so now you're doing three bows to your outer spiritual home. And hold on just so that everybody can do them together. Okay, I think you're ready. You can go ahead. Now you can take a seat. And so let me say, reiterate that again. You know, the, if you were a monk, this is the place where you would live, essentially. This is where you would sit. This is where you would sleep. This is where you would eat. This is where you would spend your life, much, much of your life, your practice life. But um, although you most likely will not do that, uh, you hopefully will spend some time on that what is it, three by three, four by four, um, square of, of land, of space. Um, and so also remember, remember it uh, when you forget. Remember it, you know, when, when, when you see it, when you don't feel like practicing, when, it, uh, when you'd rather be doing something else, just remember this, remember this moment, remember those vows that you made to your seat and remember, all right, this is another way to return, even though I can never leave. Still, this is another way to return. All right. And so Nina, let me just acknowledge your comment. Can you explain to them what Mudita is? Um, I believe it's the, it's either the Pali or the Sanskrit for sympathetic joy, just feeling uh, joy for other people's well-being and and for all of you for entry, this commitment, it just genuinely makes me happy to, to see you and to know that you're entering the path. Did I get that right, Suse? Yes. And Mudita, I believe it's the, sans the Sanskrit. 
No. And it's one of the qualities, one of the, um, it's not yeah. one of the paramis, is it? No. It, one of the, it's one of the four immeasurables. The four immeasurables. It's not the, yeah. Um, yes. All right. So um, congratulations <laughs> to all of you. Um, so let's let's go into our into our study. Um, I wanted to start with with this quote on on page thirty four. So Thich Nhat says. When we practice mindfulness, we are not practicing for ourselves alone, but also for our ancestors and for the countless generations to follow. Uh, Andrew, would you mind uh, sharing with people that question, you know, that you that you shared with me uh, a few weeks ago, you know, over email about what would happen, what would our actions be like if there were no more generations to come? Right. Um, I took a philosophy class this last semester, and one of the things we read was called The Afterlife, and it was about a theoretical situation where if you knew 30 days after your death that a meteor would strike the earth and just leave nothing left, how... I mean, and the whole piece was about how would that affect the things we do now and the way you live your life that would, knowing that there would be total annihilation after your self-annihilation, how would that affect your values and your motivation? And, you know, it talked about things like cancer research, you know, that's for the betterment of future generations. If you're constantly putting your value into the future then is there a point where your like life wouldn't have meaning knowing that it was going to come to an end i i think that was what you're referring to yes so so just to um kind of summarize that if there were no generations to come how do you think Han is saying we practice mindfulness and really everything else let's say wakefulness and everything not just for ourselves, but for all the generations that follow. So what if there were no generations? Do you think would that change? Would the Bodhisattva vow, would your uh, own desire to wake up, would that change? Is that too abstract a question? My desire to wake up would dramatically increase it would be imperative i would never go dancing again i would just sit and sit and sit say more you would give up your dancing if i knew that was going to happen you bet i, I should be giving it up anyhow but that would make it really strike home uh-huh i would just say oh my god i gotta do this i gotta get it for all my ancestors and all those generations and my own kids I would be sad and I would work harder. Uh, hold on. So you would, you, that would be the case if, 
if you knew that this was it, that you were going to die and that everybody else was going to die? No, if you're telling me, aren't you saying, I know that I'm going to self-annihilate. And then I also know that how many years later, the rest of the world, the meteor is coming. Yeah. Did I get that correctly? I know both of these things are happening, are going to happen. And so what would I do knowing that when that meteor strikes pretty soon, it's over? I would really want to wake up for the sake of everybody, my own sake, probably selfishly first, and hurry up and see what else could I give them? I don't do cancer research. and <laughs> That's what I would do. Okay, and so you would just need the, the 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 guarantee that it's all going to end in order to be willing to give up the dancing. <laughs> it sounds like I would, right? Okay, well, um, it is all going to end, Marguerite. <laughs> but that fast? <laughs> Hopefully not. Oh my gosh! Oh well, that's a good point. Now you don't really have to give up the dancing. I don't think, but you know, just come slow it down. Yeah, be more discerning about it. Yes, I know. As I said here, I was thinking of that. Okay, um, Nina. Well, first, I would not give up dancing. I think I would be even more inclined to to learn to dance a salsa, which I've always wanted to. Um, but but on a, not on a lighter note, when you pose that question, you say, I thought, how is that different from where we are right now? Because there is not a day when I don't see something about the planet, you know, fires, the floods that I think, oh, I'm going to be gone, you know, in whatever, how many years, decade, couple decades, three decades, but my children, grandchildren, the rest of humanity, um, how long do we have, you know? So I don't think it really makes a difference for me because I still, I know I'm going to die. And I think about death and when I do, I'm more inclined to practice um, and maybe less inclined to, to do frivolous things, although I don't know that dancing is necessarily. But anyway, I just, um, for me, it's not a theoretical question. It's sort of my state a lot of days. And, I think for younger people, especially too. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share. Well, my two cents is that dancing is not frivolous and that would be part of our first in-person retreat. I can teach you how to dance salsa. Um, Jitsuko. Um, hi. So I just wonder like um, when you actually wake up like, I don't think that fundamentally does anybody else any good fundamentally because you are awake. I mean, you have um, become enlightened. You've had a realization. And um, 
it affects how you relate to the world, but I don't, I don't think it does any good for anybody else. And all that's left, I think, after you have a realization, um, after you are enlightened, um, is just to create good karma just for other people and other things. But fundamentally, I don't think enlightenment does anybody else any good, except for yourself. Are you up on your rooftop? Yeah, I hope I don't get struck by lightning. It's I very, think I'll be, a, I'll be okay. It's just very dramatic. It's very dramatic. Well, so how about what I just said to them just a moment ago? There is no other at any time, at any place, in any place. Right, but the others don't know that. So it doesn't do the others any good. So like, but just make good karma for the others, but they don't know that. But you said it doesn't fundamentally do anything any good. The Buddha said when upon his awakening, I and all beings have at once entered the way. So, why did he say that if it doesn't do anybody else any good? I know what you mean in terms of other people not knowing, but then why would he say such a thing? Why would Thich Nhat Hanh say we practice mindfulness not just for ourselves, but for generations to come? I mean, the more people that have that experience is the better. And then you can maybe help people or create conditions where it's easy, it's good for those, helps other people to have that experience. but. Fundamentally, one person having that experience doesn't make other people have that experience. I mean. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I see your point. And there's the other side as well. Fundamentally, when one person awakens, the whole universe awakens. Julia. Hi everyone. Um, yeah, definitely. I feel like uh, in one hand, I feel it's like a ripples. You like a stone that thrown in the pond and the ripples from you just go to everyone. And uh, when you see enlightened person and I've seen teachers, uh, they just with their benevolent compassion and love inspire you to be like them, to practice. And then I think, okay, if there's no going to be other people, then I, I really like to be that ripple, you know, that ripples and people can experience that. Then I was just thinking, nah, then I basically don't need to practice. And then I think, well, if you're going to be born, then not on Earth, but somewhere else, maybe other planet, because my mind still continues somewhere, even if it's Earth gonna be destroyed, which is it will very soon, um, then I will be probably, if I convince myself that I'm gonna be born somewhere else, then I will have to practice still. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's what I thought. So hold on, so you only have to practice if you, in a sense, can be guaranteed that you're gonna be reborn somewhere else after the Earth gets destroyed? I, well, I like practicing, <laughs> but if I, 
with extra more like practice, you know, then I extra, I do an extra step because I know it's good for everybody. If I know that everybody is not there, then I'll probably not go this extra step. I just do it for my own benefits, kind of like the realizers, you know, the, not the Bodhisattva, but like the, just the regular one. Yeah, that's what I would do. The, the the kind of the self which is just prediction in terms but uh, yeah which I know the point of of that discussion that Andrew had in, in in his class you know that that would we would we have the same motivation um was it who was next Jess or uh yeah Jess Um, my internet connection is really bad. So if this is too annoying, just be like, <laughs> then I'll type it. Um, I don't think it would change anything. I think I appreciate the philosophical question, but from my perspective as a dead person, what does it matter if the world is ending 30 days after I die or 300 million years? If you just like do the math on the sun, you know, like, I, I don't, I think it's a, it's a way of considering it that's very confronting in a way that is useful, but it doesn't change the fundamental reality, at least as described by Thich Nhat Hanh, which is if all moments past and present, all generations past and present, all realities past and present are present in this moment, are this moment, urgency of the need for liberation is at its peak now every now, every always, always, whenever now is. So I don't think that, I think there are a lot of ways in which it doesn't change it. That's one way of saying it from my, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. Yes. Sarah. Um, yes, yes, Jess. <laughs> um, uh, so when I sit, I do not feel connected to generations before me or generations after me. And I'm, and I'm not like Brooke was saying, I'm not doing it. I don't practice for anybody else. It's completely a selfish. I do it because I like what it does for me. Um, so it's very selfish. But uh, yes, to, I want to echo what Jess was saying. There is no, I mean, the generations past, generations future, is all encapsulated in who you are. The seeds of all of that is all inside of you and inside of everybody. So it's all the same thing. Um, and it also, I'm thinking about a different, uh, I don't know, a little, maybe the following uh, chapter. The, the concept of the emptiness of transmission is what I'm thinking about too, that like from one generation to the next or from your parents to you and then your children, there's nothing is being transferred at all. It's all still just one thing. Yes. Um, I guess I just wanted to say, you know, that in, even in those moments when we think we're just doing it for ourselves and when we think that it's just, that it's selfish, it can't be because um, a little bit further 
Bon, he says it very clearly, the whole cosmos is our body and we're also the body of the entire cosmos. And that is true. And in a sense, that's what you were saying when what Jess was saying, um, this is true. This is the way things are. We may know it or not, as Jitsuko was saying, we may realize it or not, but this is actually how it is. And so even in the moment of sitting down because it makes me feel better, we are still sitting down with every single being that ever was, ever is, and ever will be. So that's something to think about, especially when we don't feel like doing it. <laughs> and Louise? Um, I was thinking about or feeling when um, Jessica was talking, um, the not, I understood the way of like believing that it doesn't affect other people, you know, like in a practical, helpful, let me get through this life kind of way. Um, but I, I feel the other one really strongly. Uh, and sometimes it's as if uh, like looking at the earth or the universe, but really concretely like looking at the earth as one organism, you know? And so just being a part of that one organism. And I th think about that when we talk about sympathetic joy, but it also, it seems stronger when, when I think about sympathetic um, sadness and pain, you know, um, when one of us hurts, we all do. Uh, but I could see how that could start sounding kind of funny <laughs> when, you, when you're being very practical, you know what I mean? Or like on that other level. You know, when it's like someone in a mansion and there's a someone living on the street in front of them. But it it's true. Just in, intuitively, I, I feel that. Um, and that question, do you say when uh, when people are, you know, saying, yes, I believe it. This moment is all moments, past, present, future. Um, one organism, not just in space, but in time, you know. And so I should feel as I feel now as I would if I knew I was going to die. But on another level, I really took that question <laughs> and tried to believe it, you know, like, all right, I'm going to die in 30 days and my, or tomorrow or whatever, and everyone else will die. And my answer was really specific. And I just wanted to go walk into a forest, um, like room temperature, no shoes, put my palms to the earth and lay there, sit in a way for a long time. And then I imagine coming back to all, everyone I know and everyone along the way um, to say whatever I needed to say, to do whatever needed to be done. But I'm, I want to thank you for that question because I think that's saying something to me right now to listen to, so. Mm -hmm. Yes, because even though it is true fundamentally that we're the whole universe and we're not separate you know, from one another, most of the time in our daily practical lives, we forget and we don't feel that, you know, and, and we get caught, you know, in all sorts of things that seem to contradict actually that truth. And so what do we need to do to remember 
to reconnect to something that again was never separate and yet we do have to do the active work of reconnecting uh, and and remembering as in in you know the, the members of our body and, and remembering that 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 it extends you know this far and uh, especially you know living in in cities and living in you know blocks of cement uh, it's easy to be disconnected I mean this you know it's difficult to connect like this right I've talked about this before you know I would so want to do this little you know, entering ceremony with you in person because it's different because something happens. And so how do we, you know, still try to let it be the connection that it can be and let it be meaningful? You know, how do we use what we have? Um, that is what has been so, what I think is most challenging about the pandemic is, is the, 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 we're all living this and we have to do it to some extent separately and how incredibly challenging that is because that's not <laughs> how we're built. That's not how we actually are. So, Gabe, I saw your hand up uh, at some point and I think then it came back down. Did you want to say anything? No, I think everybody else pretty much answered it. So Jitsuko, so, so we're, we're in, in chapter four and did you want to say, because I know you sent that email to me, there's the whole little rant really, if I could respectfully call it, you know, that, that Thich Nhat Hanh goes into about parenthood. So you were disturbed by that. Would you like to um, Well, I just, I found it to be um, a very slippery slope because he was saying only people that are really good karma producers and have really studied and practiced and are able to just really transmit good karma, like only those people are the ones that should have children. And, um, you know, everybody should have to go to a good karma class before they have kids. And, um, and I mean, I, I agree, like I understand, I understand what he's trying to say, but then I think if somebody just read that part of the book without reading the rest of the book, they would start to think like, oh, you know, like the good karma children, like those are the blessed children and maybe those should be the only ones that reproduce. And, and then the bad karma children, they shouldn't reproduce. And it just made me feel like I should never have had kids because I just can't like all this stuff he's saying, like, I don't know, like the weight of it all. I was just like, this is too much. Like, I don't think I can be a, such a great good karma transmitter and maybe I should never have had kids, but I'm getting rained on. I'm going to move, but that's kind of the gist. Okay. Um, and Carrie, I, I don't want to um, exclude you. I, I, I don't know. I don't even remember if I told you what the book was. Did you? Do you have the book, or let me? Or if not, I can give you a little background. No. Okay. So, so this is just a, a, a section in which Tignahan is is uh, speaking. It's arguing for the creation of a, of an institute where people could get prepared uh, before they get married. Because he's saying, you know, getting married is a serious thing and starting a family is a serious thing. So they would just go and they spend a year really learning 
how to be human beings. So he's not really talking about good karma and, and bad karma, as Jutsuka is saying, but he is saying, uh, you know, that these, these parents would, for example, he says they would keep a record of the joys and difficulties they have during the time before and after conception and a record of the suffering, happiness and the significant events during the life of the child from age one to 10. I mean, maybe somebody would do this. I have a hard time imagining that, but um, his point is that we receive seeds of suffering from our parents. And so that it's the parents' responsibility before they become parents to as much as possible kind of get their act together so that they can be good parents. They can be mindful and aware and be uh, transmit seeds of joy and compassion, et cetera. Um, did anybody have a reaction to the two or have a different way of looking at it? You know, because it is, it, is it is a little bit of a chunk. And so I just want to, I don't want to ignore it. And because there are parents in the group, but at least one of them did have a strong reaction. So how did you read it? Yes, Nina. Well, I thought I, I lived in Vietnam for a year right before I had my daughter. And I remember it strikes me as very Vietnamese, Thich Nhat Hanh's admonitions. And it, it's a, as much cultural as Buddhist, I think. But I remember the grandmother, Vietnamese grandmother in the, in the home that I lived in, she said, you know, because I said I wouldn't have children when I got back. And she said, everything you see, the baby sees. Everything you eat, the baby eats everything you feel the baby feels and that just even now i got a chill up my spine because i went back and i did get pregnant and i remember being in a movie with my husband and suddenly it got extremely violent and i left because i remember what Yen said and i i really do feel like that makes sense to me, not in a moralistic way, but it's consistent with the order of interbeing where everything that you consume, you know, be it sense or music or image, everything that you consume that you put into your body or your consciousness, it, it does, it, it just does permeate and affect children. And it's just, the, but where I take issue with him is teaching parents to be parents before their parents. That I do not agree with because your children teach you how to be a parent. Your, your, children, your children teach you. I, I really don't think that that's something that someone can transmit to you before you experience it. Although they can tell you like the grandmother and family, you know, to, to be mindful. Yeah. That's my yes. And, you know, I mean, he says it quite clearly, and that is one of the, the important points of the Yogacara is that all of the seeds of your experience get stored in your consciousness. And so everything that you take in stays there somewhere. Some of them, 
are, you know, get watered and then they become active, but they are all there. And so, and that is one of the reasons why he places so much emphasis on mindfulness, but I think it's the reason, as I've said before, why teachers, Buddhist teachers in general, place so much emphasis on protecting and training the mind. Because some of, some of what you'll receive, you don't have a choice about, right? Unless you are living, you know, off in, a, in an island somewhere, and even then. And so uh, how do you, as much as possible, protect or choose, you know, what to take in, because that is what you're actually going to be and manifest. So, so this is a, a very important point. At the same time, you can't, you can't just go crazy, you know, because, I mean, you want to live your life. But how do you do it with awareness? Sarah, I wasn't sure if your hand is up from before or do you know? Okay, Jess? Yeah, I mean, this is very uh, alive. Five months pregnant. So uh, I, the thing that saves this for me, this proposal, and in fact, the thing that Nina, the perspective that Nina is sharing from um, it is that I don't view all of the things that it's exactly as you're saying, as we say, like, I don't view all of the things that you feel and you see and everything as being your individual responsibility. Some, some of it is, but, you know, in the example you gave Nina, like, what if it were not, you know, that you had chosen to go see a movie that it turns out had, had some violence in it, but that someone lives a life that has a lot of violence in it, right? And there's no way for them to get out of it. Um, I don't view that as that individual person's responsibility. I view it as the society's responsibility for all of us to protect each other. So I think if I believed, as is very typically American, that you know if you just eat the right thing and you just make the right choice for yourself and you will be okay, then this is a pretty objectionable point of view. But if that's not the perspective, then I actually don't see the problem. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this would be a great thing, but only if all of us are in it together, not as just little Adam's individual. So in that, that quote, you know, the whole cosmos is our body, he also says, says before that, the ideas of individual and collective inside and outside can be transcended can be seen for what they are. Inside is made of outside, right? And he says, you know, that, that line, which he actually uses in another, in another book, the sun is our heart. And, uh, but, oh. yeah. I, but if the whole cosmos is your body, then why is he picking and choosing good karma over, over why is it like, come on. And what about all the people that don't have good karma? I just, I just found it really disturbing and I found it a real place of like, I could see how somebody could start getting racist and prejudiced right there. Where did you, where did you read him speaking about good karma and bad karma? I mean, to me, that was like the underlying, like the good seeds and the, you know, like, I mean, I guess maybe he never like came out and said good karma and bad karma, but he's like, you know, we want to water the good seeds and generate the good seeds and um it just it kind of felt a little bit like 
okay, like if the whole cosmos is our body, then, and then like, then we shouldn't pick and choose karma. And then um, if we do pick and choose karma, we're, we're leaving out a whole bunch of people that have bad karma. <laughs> and that's, a, it's just frustrating. And I think somebody maybe with a lesser mind or somebody that's not like all the way, like reading the whole everything could like use that as a, as a, um, as a way to be really racist. I, I, I read this as him saying, we need to pay a lot of attention to be mindful of the seeds in our and the collective consciousness so that to the best of our ability, what we pass on to our children are the seeds that will help them to grow and thrive and not the seeds that will cause them more suffering. So I don't think you know he would stand at the door and be like, okay, you bad karma, out, you can't come in. You good karma, okay, come on in. <laughs> um, he's not really saying that. He, he's saying, be aware of what the seeds are. Be aware that you're conscious that the store has something like the storehouse consciousness might perhaps even exist. And then be aware with through mindfulness, through awareness, be aware of what it is that you are watering and then passing on to your kids. And so try, I mean, you know, it, it does sound a little, I'm not exactly sure what the word is, but you know, I mean, it, in one sense, and you referred to it in your email, you know, the Bodhisattva Academy that I was talking about, it's the same thing. It's not like you, we would have an exam and be like anybody who has like bad thoughts, they can't come in. Anybody who gets a little bit selfish, no, 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 they can't do it. The whole point is to be there, is to bring the whole thing so that we can look at it and then try to act as well, as compassionately, as skillfully, as wisely as we can. So you can, let's just take it as a given that the whole cosmos is going to have a whole lot of shit and is going to have a whole lot of good in it. Okay, now how do we, as he says later on, you know, through right effort, how do we, up, you know, um, how do we prevent unwholesome seeds from arising, return unwholesome seeds that have already arisen, return them to the storehouse? How do we water the wholesome ones and how do we maintain the ones that have already arisen? I mean, that's essentially the formula for right effort. So, you know, you said, I hope that in the Bodhisattva Academy, you know, all sorts of slobs can, can come in. Yes, they, they can. You come as you are. And then we'll work together, which is exactly what we're doing right now. We'll work together at identifying, okay, what, are, what is an unwholesome seed in my life? Is it helping me? Is it helping my child? No. Okay. What can I do about that? What is a wholesome seed? What do I do to water it and then to maintain it, to keep it going and to pass it on to her in this case? You know, that's how I, how I, how I read this in, in its kind of positive sense. Any comments about that? Yes, Annalise. Um, one of the ways, Jitsuko, that I um, think of it in that context is, um, because I, I do see a lot of ways that you can use some of the Buddhist texts to be a bit racist or classist, you know, when they talk about karma. Um, and for me, 
I feel like it's the way that it's defined, you know, like, I think in the polycanon, they might talk about class as being like um, a sign that you've had, had great lives before, you know, <laughs> and that, that means like you're almost enlightened or something. And if you're a lower class, then no, oh, you must have been, you know, messing around this whole time. Um, I don't, I, I don't really take it in in that way. I translate all of that in my head, so I'm not sure if that's um, like picking and choosing in a religion or something, you know, but I don't take it that to be that face value. Um, but in terms of the seeds, um, I think it's good to define the seeds, like what we mean by seeds. Like for instance, if we're like, like the seed of anger or something is one thing, but the seed of like confronting anger is like another thing do you know what I mean like if you have a life situation where where your circumstances there's something very like harmful in those circumstances I don't think that means don't have children or like or a, a low bad karma or lower class you know I think what you would nurture or want to what I would want to nurture in that case is my own resilience um, and how I work with that circumstance in my life. And that is what I would want to pass to my kids because they're going to, I don't think, of, and I don't know, do people really have circ life circumstances where there's nothing to work with? Do you know what I mean? So we can, I think that's the seed you pass down. It's, it's not the circumstances that are the seeds. It's, it's what, how we work with them, I think. What do you think? Right, exactly, and we've spoken about this before. You know, sometimes things will happen in your life that you didn't choose. You know, even though Buddhism says you choose your, your parents, you know, the, the, your, your gender, your race, your class, you know, the, your history, there's a whole set of circumstances that you get born into that Buddhism sometimes does try to explain according to past lives and things like that, but let's not even get into all of that. You, here you are in this particular configuration and every single life is going to have things about it that will be wonderful and things about it that will be very challenging. And Buddhism is basically saying suffering is um, in one sense, not knowing that you can do something about what is happening, right? It's how you respond to the things that you experience and that are happening to you. And how do you choose certain things, right? To transform, he speaks about transformation. Because otherwise that quote, and I can't believe we basically just got to like verse five. This is gonna take a while <laughs> to get through this book. So, but he, there's that quote that when you go to buy a necktie and let's just call it a t-shirt, you go to buy a t-shirt you think you're choosing the t-shirt, but the t-shirt is choosing you. What do you think about that? That's in pay, on page 44. That last paragraph on page, last paragraph, I think, yeah. No, no, uh, no, it's on page 40, sorry. Yeah, when you shop for a t-shirt, you think it is you who chooses it. But the moment you see it, 
the moment you see a t-shirt that aligns with the seats in your store consciousness, the t-shirt chooses you. You think you've exercised your freedom of choice, but the choice was already made a long time ago. And that's really a not very good thing for me to throw in like two minutes before we have to go. <laughs> so maybe we can hold it, you know, for, for next time. But really think about that. What is he saying when he says that? And what does that mean then about the choices that we think we're making? What does it mean about practice? You know, can you really transform anything or is it really all predetermined? So what is he saying there? Right? Uh, so let's let's leave it there. So we basically got to verse five. Can I, I mean, I just say something because this fits right in and it might never fit in again. I was um, sitting on the many years ago, my daughter's uh, 35. So she was four years old and we were just sitting out on the steps in the backyard. I don't know what the whole conversation was about, but I remember this that she said, do you know I picked you to be my mommy? And that was it. I mean, and I believe she knew she did and whatever the reason was, but that was a, a profound moment. Yeah, and, and Buddhism does in fact say that we pick, that we choose our parents. And you know, you could say in another, in another way that we choose or are chosen by the people in our lives, right? To learn what it is that we have to learn. Because think of all the millions of people you will never meet, all the billions of interactions you will never have. And yet there are, there are those that are there in a sense exactly, perfectly for you to see what it is that you need to see, if you choose, if you choose to do so. So how wonderful of, of your daughter to think that and not the opposite, like, oh my God, how, <laughs> how did I end up here? Well, do you think it is, well, it's too late to talk about this, but she had, she's four, so she hadn't been conditioned a whole heck of a lot. And she just had kind of been born basically. I mean, I bet she really did know she was picking me wherever she was before she, wasn't here or when her father and I were in bed together and all of a sudden, you know, she picked me. Well, you know, I do think that as young children, you know, before all the conditioning gets, conditioning gets piled on, we have more access to our inherent wisdom and we have to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff. What do you think sitting for hours is doing? You're just shedding, you know, all the layers, all the debris, you know, it's kind of like slogging through all the, the piles of stuff so that you can get to what has always been true, what you've always actually known. So, um, all right. Next week, um, I am taking the first part of the week to do a solo retreat. So I'm not, I, I didn't make any sessions available and that's, that's except Monday. Monday before I start, uh, but that's that's the reason. And then um, I'm opening up it up for the weekend for the weekend session. I made a mistake on the um, original schedule. So if you had checked out the schedule and be like Sunday nine o'clock, what is she thinking? I don't know what I was thinking. It's it ends at seven uh, on Sunday, and um, and 
given the conversation that we had, let me tell the, the guys just so that you hear this, it's not a secret and at the same time I haven't advertised it yet. We had a meeting, I invited a number of women to a meeting to look at what it's like to practice and you know the path to liberation as a woman in a female body. And so we just had one meeting uh, last Saturday. And uh, based on that and conversations about that, you know, I, I opened up Sashin. So if people are parents, for example, they can come and go if they, they need to. So, you know, to make it possible for people to actually practice within their circumstances. So you can take a look at that on the website. So that's next Friday. So a week from this Friday to Sunday, all right? And I think that's it. Would anybody like to volunteer to chant? Come on, don't think about it. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> okay, thank you, Brian. <clears throat> if someone else was going to raise their hand, I'll gladly I don't want to be greedy. They're still warming up. All right. Well, okay. well, you know, I do this with a 12 year old and he's been doing it. So you certainly can do it. All right. So next time I'll do it loud with you. Just what? Just uh, internet connection is so bad. Okay. Well, so, so how about you do it next time? All right. <clears throat> May we be saved. May we be kind. May we be joyful. May To get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.